Make stable and clean looking moves to control your path. Maintain poise and posture by straightening the natural curves of your spine. Treat your partner the way you want him or her to treat you. If what I'm describing sounds like key techniques to effectively ballroom dance, you're right. If what I'm describing are ways to negotiate a job offer, right again. And if what I'm describing are techniques to climb an extraordinary career, spot on. But according to today's guest, most people had more training on how to tie their shoes than to acquire career skills. Outside of formal schooling specific to our degree, most of us have never studied nor developed skills for our careers. Amen to that. Welcome to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation. I'm Chuck Garcia, and today's guest is Mark Hirschberg, engineer, MIT instructor, fractional CTO, we'll get into that, and author of a wonderful book called The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. And I want to hold it up for our listeners and on YouTube that you can see it, The Career Toolkit. Our show today it's sponsored by Climber. And for those of you who are watching us, you can see a Climber machine here. CLMBR, the most efficient full body cardio and strength fitness machine available with instructor led on demand climbing and fitness classes. Key investors of Climber include Novak Djokovic, Jay Z, and Ryan Seacrest. To learn more about Climber, go to CLMBR.com. To buy one, use the code Chuck. 250 at checkout, save $250 on your paid in full offer. Climber also offers a convenient industry finance option. Again, it's click clmbr.com, input code CHUCK250. Offers cannot be combined and only valid on paid in full pricing. And Mark, welcome to the show. Great to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here with you today. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. Uh, when I opened up that quote, uh, did it sound like ballroom dancing, careers, negotiating, or any, any of the other metaphors that we could possibly apply to these themes? All of the above. Well, I, I was intrigued when you came into my life and I read your book. But what really caught my attention was what you did when you're not writing the book and when you're not an engineer, and that is having a partner and having a goal and objective. Before we even get into the book or to your background, what is it about ballroom dancing that led you ultimately to even write a book called The Career Toolkit? Ballroom dancing was, I think, a really helpful turning point in my life. I began really dancing in earnest towards the end of my college career and into grad school. And then my dance partner at the time decided she wanted to compete. Uh, she was also my girlfriend, and so that meant <laughs> I decided I wanted to compete. Right. So that, that kind of dragged me a little bit into competition, but I am so glad she did that. It helped me with my interactions with other people from different backgrounds. It helped me with my public speaking. It right. just helped me get out of my shell, and I think really helped me in ways personal and professional. Well, let's go back to those days, because I think that set the basis when I read your book. I read it not as an engineer necessarily, but a, a career climber who had a lot to say. But people that speak of careers as engineers often take it from a different lens, just because they do think things differently. So take us back to your college days, where you went, what you studied, and why. I went to MIT for my undergraduate and graduate work. 
and I have degrees in physics, EECS undergrad, a minor in political science, and then my graduate work was in cryptography. So my undergrad, that was, I was always interested in physics, I was interested in computers. I used to want to go into politics, but then I had a passion towards secret codes and that, of course, modern version of cybersecurity, which is what got me into that. Right. Well, then your career coming out of MIT, what, what, what did you launch yourself into? I was a little lost coming out of MIT. I looked at a number of different options because back in those days, this was the late 90s, the dot-com era, there was big tech, so Microsoft and IBM. I didn't want to do that. Wall Street, not for me. Consulting, big firms, McKinsey, Accenture. Yeah, that wasn't a fit either. And so I defaulted to doing tech startups, not because it's what I want to do. It was just, well, I guess I'll try this. But that turned out, I got a little lucky there. That turned out to be the right thing for me and got me very excited about growing myself. And that led to some of the early discoveries that put me on the path to this book. Well, this is interesting. While, while some people pick careers, some careers pick them, your point, Mark, is what you learned about yourself. Explain that to our listeners, particularly many engineering students, my students listen in. They're not exactly sure what they're going to do with it. What did you learn about yourself on this path that may have picked you? Really great question, because not everyone at 22 or even 32 knows what they want to do. And it's okay to not be sure. You can still work on developing a career plan. I knew, for example, a big company where I would just feel like a cog in the wheel. That didn't feel right to me. I couldn't necessarily articulate why, but I knew that wasn't right. So I looked at areas where it didn't feel wrong. Right? Right. And that was sufficient. That was sufficient to say, let me go in this path. If I discovered maybe that wasn't good after a year or two, okay, I'd readjust. But what I found once I was in there was I liked being able to take the initiative. In a startup company, especially the small ones I was working at in those days, it was chaos and there were no rules. So if there was a problem, you could just walk over and say, huh, no one's dealing with this. I think I'll do it because it looks interesting. And then suddenly my experience and responsibilities grew. And that's a great opportunity you don't always get in a large company. On the other hand, large companies have other benefits and resources that you don't get in a small one. So it's what aligns to you and your needs. Well, this is interesting because you have not mentioned a word yet of engineering, of of any of the science, technology, engineering, and math. What you were learning about yourself, I'm not saying that you didn't practice engineering, but the revelations were not engineering related, were they? No. And this is one of the key things we need to understand because in school, we are teaching you about some discipline. In my case, there's a lot of STEM. In other cases, it might be marketing or accounting or whatever your field is. And you need that knowledge. That's great. But universities really only teach that knowledge. But you need more than just that industry knowledge to be effective in what you do. You well, need now, these other skills. Well, now we're getting somewhere because writing, I think it was the first page of the book. As I was reading the book, I was looking for particular key things. And it, it's a really simple thing to know. Hey, we spent more time learning to tie our shoes. That's not actually, it's funny, but it's true. And, and, and for you're a career engineer, I was a career Wall Street. We we're very in similar places because I found the same thing. Like who taught me to navigate the uncertainty and the confounding human spirit? And were you finding, particularly in these chaotic places, a couple years out of school, mid-20s, not quite sure what to make sense of all of this. What did you find about navigating the people part of it? 
That was the hard part. And in fact, if you ask any manager, what is it that makes your job difficult? 100% of the answers say it is the people. Indeed. We can solve the engineering. We can solve the figuring it out, the building, the creating. Just give us some time because those are the tools we've been trained. But the people part, and this is why I wanted to become a manager, because if you think about, let's take engineering, and it could same could be true for Wall Street or even your marketing campaigns. There are rules. Here's how you build something. And maybe there are some trade-offs. You could do it one of three ways, and you want more of this or less of that. But when it comes to people, there is an infinite set of problems, an infinite set of approaches and solutions. And finding the one that works best, it is as much an art as it is a science. And that is really challenging and interesting to me. And what was it about people? Because you dealt with, I suspect, so many in engineering that ultimately, I'm going to bet, caused you to write this book. It's because I grew up that classic 80s nerd. Think any of those stereotypes from Hollywood, that was me. Right. Chess, Star Trek, math. And it's great because it's logical and there are rules. And that was easy for me to understand. The people part was not so easy for me to understand. And as I tell my students, I go back to teach at MIT every year. I say, I do this because I want you to avoid many of the mistakes that I made along the way. Because I didn't know how to interact with the people side. As a good engineer, I'd get tripped up in these other skills that no one taught me. This is where, were you reflecting at times when you were feeling either lost or maybe not quite up to the task ahead of you, not because of the engineering of the people, did it cause you to reflect on your education and wish either things had been different or the mix could have been different? The insight that first really led me down this path, I knew that I wanted to become a CTO, a chief technology officer. I understood that didn't just mean being the best programmer. Mm -hmm. In fact, I am a worse programmer today than I was years ago. I don't spend a lot of time writing code, but I understood there were these other skills. I need to know how to hire people, how to manage, how to lead, how to work with people from other departments. I need to know some strategy. I need to know all these other skills that was never taught to me. And so I set out to learn them. And I realized as I began to learn them, there weren't the same resources we have today. There weren't great podcasts like this. There weren't blogs, there were fewer books. But I was reading books, I was talking to people. And then when I would hire other people and in an interview, I'd ask a technical question and they'd give me that technical answer. Okay, great, you took the right courses in school. Right. But then when I would ask them about leadership or teamwork, I'd get blank stares. And I realized this was a universal problem. So I had to start training up other people. Now, along the way, I still had missteps. Even as I became a more senior leader, I remember my first political fight. It was over before I even knew it was happening because I am, by default, not a very political person. And then I just discovered, wow, this person just went after my job and basically got at least part of it, and I was caught unaware. So I had to improve in that area. And they didn't teach you that in engineering school, did they? Not, not well, at all. They didn't even teach me this, this type of problem exists, let alone how to solve it. Well, let's examine that for just a second, because I think there's a real lesson in here. Both of us teach at prestigious universities, and we teach the engineers these the hard truth about soft skills, not just that the reality of how hard it is, 
but the actual tactics and techniques of communicating, interviewing, getting ready for that. Yet, the educational model seems slow to turn that flywheel. Why do you think that is? There are historical reasons for this. So let's look at the university level. That goes back about 800 some years when there were a bunch of people who gathered around effectively libraries and they focus on very specific knowledge. Who runs the mechanical engineering department? What's a bunch of mechanical engineers? In fact, not just people who know a little about it, they're people who went from that broad set of skills in high school to broad mechanical engineering in college, to grad school, to a PhD, where they got some really narrow, deep expertise. And they said, okay, well, we are the experts in mechanical engineering. So what we're going to do is be the gatekeepers for mechanical engineering knowledge. And if you show up to our university and take a certain amount of classes, a certain amount of time, we will designate you of having a certain level of mechanical engineering knowledge. That's really what universities do. They're designating an amount of knowledge you have, not saying you are a capable or skilled workers. Now it's run by, again, the discipline experts. And so they're just concerned about, I don't know if you're, if you're a good communicator or not. I just know whether you know enough about mechanical engineering. Right. If you think back to the workforce, even going back, let's say about 70 years or so to mid-century, back then it was a lot of command and control. So employees were given a very specific task and they were hired for their knowledge of that task. Fast forward to today, even the last 20 years or so, we have these multidisciplinary teams we have the understanding that the manager doesn't necessarily know everything and that, oh, you might be a new employer, an individual contributor, but you're going to bring something the rest of us don't know. And so we need people to behave in different ways, but this is a recent trend. And the university system, which goes back 800 years and which has a turnover on the order of you know, 60 some years, right? People get their PhD and then they spend their lifetime doing it. It's a lot slower to adapt. I think we'll start to see changes accelerated by the pandemic, because people are starting to say, what am I paying for? Knowledge alone is not enough. I need these skills, but it's going to take universities 20 or 30 years to really adjust their model. Well, you have, and I think both of us are kindred spirits and that the books that we wrote were trying to fill the gap, if for no other reason than to advise our students on the practical reality of what they're going to face when they get out of these institutions. In your case, and before we, and I want to get to the career toolkit, because I think anyone who writes a book, there is a transformation inside because you're laying down a lot of very personal feelings. But when any of our listeners or viewers go to LinkedIn and they look up Mark Harshberg on that, you will see something right underneath his name and it says fractional CTO. And no one's going to Columbia or to MIT to major in fractional CTO, although... CTO maybe. Can you explain that and help our listeners understand what the implication of the word fractional means in the world? Fractional CTO, it's a newer type of role. Other fractional CFOs have been a lot more common. Right. I think we're going to see more fractional roles. Thinking about other types of roles, think about, for example, a graphic designer. Many companies say, oh, we need some new designs for our system. This is not a full-time job. We don't need someone here 40 hours a week or for an entire year. So what do we do? We hire a contractor to come in and do it. A lot of early stage companies say, 
you know what, we need developers. In fact, I tell many trying to hire me full-time, I say, you don't need me. You're gonna pay me a lot of money and I'm not gonna be writing code. And right now you've got four engineers, hire a fifth, right? You're gonna write 25% more code. That's what you need to do. Right. But there's a certain level of decision-making or set of problems that are higher level that a coder or even a director of engineering couldn't do, right? These are the C-level functions. It might be strategy, fundraising, picking the right technology stack. And for that, you want to get that experienced person, but it's not a full-time 40, 50 hour a week job. So you might need someone, let's say 10 hours a week. So you hire this fractional CTO. The expectation is this person will be there for probably about a year, maybe 18 months. At that point, you're going to then bring on someone full-time, maybe that person or someone else, but they're a, they're a placeholder. And for me, I've gone in and out while I'm doing the book tour. This was a convenient way to have a flexible schedule. Well, I think it's a it's a, a telling picture of where we are in the world today as toward the gig economy. But I wonder for many of those majoring in some engineering, do they even know that it's available? And I think it's a very cool thing that you're leading by example, because what you really are is a consultant to help them bridge the gap, but bring your experience, your bias and the mistakes that you've made and, and, and all of these things that we carry with us, which I suspect as you were learning to be the fractional CTO, you were laying down the tracks of the career toolkit. So tell us why you wrote it and who you wrote it for. As I mentioned earlier, I discovered when interviewing people that while they could do the mechanical answers, meaning their discipline answers, they were short when it came to teamwork, communication, leadership, negotiation, all these other important skills. And as you've alluded to, I wound up helping to create a similar program at MIT covering these skills where I've taught for the past 20 years. Now, these skills aren't just for MIT students or aren't just for Columbia students. They are universal. In fact, the basis for that class and the basis for the topics in my book come from feedback that's been given to Columbia and MIT and a number of universities where it's been enumerated by these companies. These are the skills we can't find. That's why we created this class. So this is really for pretty much any white collar worker. And it applies in some of these uh, skills apply to blue collar workers or even in our personal lives as well. But basically if you're in some office and we'll use that metaphorically these days, if you're an office worker, these are the skills that are going to help you be more effective in what you do, no matter where you are in your career or what industry you're in. You're listening to A Climb to the Top Stories of Transformation. I'm Chuck Garcia, and my guest is Mark Hirschberg. Our show today is sponsored by Climber, CLMBR.com. Well, Mark, as you sat down and you, you felt, hey, there's, there's a need out there for what you have to say, what was your approach to what you wanted the book to convey? Tactic, strategy, operations, all of the above? It's been all of the above, which is, that's a, a big, uh, that's a big target. Yeah. I've been very fortunate because I've been teaching us for 20 years and because I've been doing it, not just at universities, but also with the people I mentor, the people I manage, I have been field testing this content for two decades. Yeah. And that's been helpful to understand, okay, you teach people, this is what leadership is about. Well, here are the questions they have. Here are the big questions, the philosophy questions. Here are the tactics about how to actually execute on it. So big and small, I understood here are where people struggle. 
here are the follow-up questions when you first present the idea. So I've had a lot of field experience to really package this in a way that can be effective for people. Yeah, in fact, uh, what I enjoyed about the book right to the end, and I really like the way that you put the big questions, because I think anyone who has sat through any conventional education, whether it's engineering or anything else, sometimes they don't know the questions to ask. And if nobody is prompting them, they go into the interview and they're all keyed up about, oh, my God, I need to know everything. No, oh, and I, I try to calm them down. No, you don't. And to try to prepare for everything. But there is a few things you do need, do need to know. So let's start with the interview. And as I, I, I walk through your book, there, there were different pieces of it. But you made the point right flat out. And I want everyone to hear this. You are always interviewing. Mark has it in very big letters right in one of the chapters. Let's start there. What do you want them to know about the interview? Not just what it says on the resume, but what's not on the resume. Ultimately, as a candidate, because this chapter, I actually break into two halves, mm-hmm. one for the candidate, but one for the hiring manager. Right, that's I love that perspective. It was a good one. Yeah, another skill. We never teach people how to hire. And I've met executives who say, yeah, I never learned. I just do. You wing it. <laughs> as a candidate, you need to figure out how you're going to stand out. Right? This goes to engineers know it's not just about being the best product because good marketing beats good engineering 90% of the time. Yep. And as a candidate, you might be the smartest, you might be the most capable, but if you can't stand out, if you can't come out of the pack and be recognized for those skills, you're not going to get the job. And so it's understanding how does the hiring manager think? How do you want to stand out? and be recognized for these skills? And how do you want to sell yourself? Because a lot of the time, the job description is kind of like an iceberg. You only see the tip of it. And there's a lot more under the surface and you're gonna have to figure out what that is and then how to sell yourself into those hidden requirements. Indeed, at Columbia, what I teach is a course on emotional intelligence and I display the iceberg. EQ and your Columbia pedigree is above the line. That's only 20%. 80% is what's unseen. And as I read your book, I thought about that. That was an interesting the way you approached it, but let's put it in in the ballroom dancing uh, metaphor. I know when I watched you or someone ballroom dance, there is a certain there's a certain posture, a body language, an eye contact. And yet I would imagine when you speak to your students and you're preparing for them for the interview, is Mark the ballroom dancer speaking here? You know, the best technique for this comes from my friend's book. Olivia Fox Caban wrote a great book called The Charisma Myth. Right. Now it turns out charisma is a skill you can learn just like golf or accounting. Right. And we think, well, no, it's, it's you either have it or you don't. Well, there are people who are naturally good at golf. There are people who are better at accounting. They're stronger with numbers naturally, but all of us can learn and the same is true of charisma. One thing we teach in ballroom is you want to project. You don't want just in this, the audio listeners might not get this. You don't want that kind of like closed down feeling. You want that up projecting just like an actor on stage. And so I think about what is it I want to project? Do I want to project strength and leadership? Do I want to project warmth and friendliness, trustworthiness? What are the values that I think will resonate well at this company? And here's a technique you can use. You can run a script in your head, right? You can basically think of yourself as you're going to be an actor. 
well, what part are you playing? Are you playing the general about to send the troops into battle? Are you playing the compassionate friend, seeing someone getting off the plane? Think about that and embody who that person is. And that's going to change what you project. It's what we do in ballroom dancing, because the way I am in a in a tango is different from a cha-cha is different from a waltz. Well, it starts with the mindset. And what, what you include in the book is getting through the interview is first establishing who you are, who you want to be, and how you're going to project that persona. And that's just not something that comes naturally. While some may have it in their DNA, it is a learned skill. And you include that in the book. But now let's get out of the interview, because I think the important part is you got the job. You spend time and you have demonstrated that you're a good engineer. Stop trying to demonstrate it. You're good. But now you got to demonstrate something else. And you talk about the evolution of, I'll let you handle those skills because they're very near and dear to my heart. You're in a meeting. You're not talking about engineering. What do you want our listeners to know to go into the meetings, to navigate the career climb? What are the other skills that are included that I really enjoyed in the book? There's a whole litany of skills. It begins with understanding how to work effectively. This is something like managing your manager, understanding where you're adding value in the company. So let's give a simple example, managing your manager. You have a great big pitch idea. How do you deliver to your manager? Do you run up to her when she walks in first thing Monday morning at 9 a.m. and say, I have this great idea and try to sell it to her? Should you catch her in the afternoon, not the morning, because she's like me and not a morning person? Should you send an email? Does she want to see a budget, a plan? Does she want you to give her a few options and then kind of guide her towards the right one? She doesn't know you're doing that, but you know how to do that. So how does your manager like to operate? How do your teammates like to operate? How are decisions made in the company? Knowing this lets you be more effective in the value you're creating, or if you don't do it well, you might have great ideas, but they're just not going to get anywhere. Well, you're, as I was reading your, your book, I teach often in my communications class, I note the top five soft skills that LinkedIn publishes every year. And even though I am in front, particularly at college, it's engineers and in my executive coaching life, it's mostly financial. They, they all cut across. Number one, creativity. Number two, persuasion. Number three, collaboration. Number four, adaptability. Number five, emotional intelligence. And as I was read your book, those were in my head. You were now promoting, whether it's those five or what, however you chose to word it. Not everybody buys this when they hear it. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Explain the benefits and the, what, what one can expect, particularly engineer, if they demonstrate these competencies? Well, let's take persuasion as an example, because I talk about this in my chapter on communication. Mm-hmm. We're going to use a very simple model here. Let's think left brain and right brain people. Yep. If you need to sell an idea and you need to sell it to someone who is extremely left brained, you're going to approach it a certain way. You're going to have a logical argument. You're going to have points and sub points and sub sub points. That's going to be very well reasoned out. If you're trying to pitch the same idea to someone who is right-brained, about slide three in your formal PowerPoint presentation, they're going to say, look, I don't have time for this. They're going to tune you out, but you're going to pitch it more emotionally. You're going to take a different approach and not have 17 sub points. You're going to sell them on the big picture, on the excitement. That's a different approach. Now we're, we're taking, again, extreme cases here. When you pitch the wrong way, what happens is you don't connect well. 
the analogy I like to use, imagine if I'm going over to France and I have to give a talk, but I don't speak French. So I'm speaking English, but what I'm asking my audience to do, every person there now needs to translate in their head the message I'm giving them. So it's like those CPU cycles. You're losing a certain amount of CPU cycles to do the translation, and that's less focus on the message itself. Right. Well, if I can speak their language, if I knew how to speak French, that means they can 100% focus on the message. When you are pitching in this left brain, right brain example, now no one's necessarily going to be extremely one or the other, but when your messaging is not aligned to their communication style and their mode of thinking, they're having to do some translation. You're getting that friction. If you can understand their style and change to pitch in that particular style, then you get 100% cognitive focus on the message and not on trying to translate into the framework they understand. Well, what you're suggesting, Mark, is the alignment of the heart and the mind is that the, the notion that when you're buying into something, you tend, we tend as human beings to buy into, buy it on emotion, but we like to support our decision with logic. But I want the engineers, my students who are listening to, 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 to get some advice from you on something else. Some of my engineers, when I explain it, they said to me, I'm an engineer. Why would, why would I need anybody to buy into anything? Why would I make a pitch? I'm just going to do the engineering. Explain the nature of career transformations when you're suggesting the unexpected and you have an idea. And as the engineer, the importance of landing this idea for career growth, if nothing else. Why? Why does it matter? You want to be a leader whether that means you have a leadership title, or even if you want to stay as an individual contributor, you want to be seen as a leader. Companies say, we want leaders. That doesn't mean they want everyone to have some VP title. To be a leader, you have to put forth ideas and sell people on them. Even engineers. Even engineers. And for us, it's particularly tricky because we speak this very arcane, esoteric language most other people don't speak. Yeah. It's very hard for them. What we always say to our students at MIT, it's easier to teach you, the engineers, these soft skills, rather than try to teach people with the soft skills, the quantitative skills. Indeed, agreed. And so you're going to be able to be multilingual, speak multiple languages. One of my jobs as a CTO, as I became a leader by position, right? My title says I have to do certain things. One of the things I have to do is translate. Because when my engineers come to me and say, we have this challenge or opportunity, and here's what it is, I see it in a technical lens. I have to go and explain that to the head of marketing, the head of finance, the head of sales. I can't use the same technical language. Right. I have to put it in terms they can understand. Yeah. Likewise, they might come to me and say, well, we have this constraint. I have to go and now translate that back. Okay, engineers, when they say this constraint, here's what it means for us. Here are the opportunities and limitations based on what they need from a business perspective. So translation, such a key part of our job. Indeed. In fact, your book makes the very good point about bridging the gap, whereas you're going to take the left brain, but you're, you're limiting and inhibiting your capacity if you're not exercising the right part of it. So in order to cross that bridge to sell the big idea that answers the big question, that's got to be right brain. And I really like your approach. And to our listeners, Pick up the career toolkit. And, and, but, but Mark, there, there's another question here, and this is to the budding authors out there. 
I would imagine as you wrote the book, you were teaching a lot of people something you had learned. What did you learn about yourself as you were writing this book and it was finally published? It was an interesting experience because I went in thinking, I've been a CTO, I've run massive multi-million dollar projects. I get using contractors and putting a project together, easy. And I still got tripped up with a couple of vendors who did not deliver on time or the quality that I wanted. So all of us even experienced people can get tripped up. Yes. <laughs> uh, I did learn the writing was easier than I expected, but I always put an asterisk with that, that again, I've been teaching this for two decades. So it was really taking what's been developed in my head for years. But of course, anyone who wants to write a book, the marketing is as much effort, if not more, as the writing. And this is true for anyone doing a company. It's not just building a great product. It is the marketing of it. It's getting the word out to the right people. That is key. And that's just a never-ending effort. Indeed. In fact, I, I, I don't want to say anybody can write a book. You and I are both authors. And it's, it's a labor of love. You write what you know. But I have to agree with you, promoting the book in a world where you're another brick in the wall until you tell people you're not, you have something that you want people to notice. But sometimes the hardest part about being an author is getting people to notice and then getting them to care. So tell us about your book tour. Who are you taking this to and where can any of our listeners find your book? So let, but let's back up title of the book. I want to hear this from you, even though I've held it up. I want you to explain the name, the subtitle, and where you're taking this. <clears throat> the Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. Now, because it's been COVID, I've been doing this all virtually. Right. I've been on a hundred some podcasts by this point, right. since getting the word out to different audiences. And one challenge and opportunity is that because it's not just for engineers, although certainly I pull in some engineering examples, yeah. I'm going in all these different areas. It's for leaders, it's for entrepreneurs, it's for engineers, it's for college students, it's for people making a career pivot because these are universal skills. So it has this broad range, which is great, but also means I have to go to a lot of different places to get the word out to different audiences. One way I do that is with an app, because one thing that happens when you read a book like this is you forget it a few weeks later. Now with the app, you don't even have to open it. Each day, it's just once a day going to pop up a reminder. It's like if you took a highlighter to the book, here's a good tip, here's a good quote. Right. It's gonna pop up to reinforce that. And where, where, where does one find the book, the app, and how do you recommend they begin the journey? Yeah, I'll mention one other usage of the app. If you're about to walk into, say, an interview, you can open it up and quickly go through those interview tips because books need to move from being just between the pages to being content when and where you want it, which is why I turned it into an app. Now, you can find everything about the book on the website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. There you can learn more about the book, see where to buy it, Amazon, local bookstores. You can contact me. You can download the app. It's in both the app stores, but you can also just go right from the website to the app store. And then there's a whole bunch of other great resources, other books, other websites, and even ways how to create a peer learning group to help reinforce the content from this book or many of the others out there. 
And they can find you on LinkedIn. It's Mark, H-E-R-S-C-H-B-E-R-G, if, if, in case you're not watching it. And Mark, let's, let's leave us. I always like it when our guests speak directly to the audience. What do you want them after they read the book? Let's give them a call to action. What do you want them to do with all of this? What I would love you to do is not read it on your own is have discussions with other people. Because unlike our engineering, engineering is memorizing a formula and then saying, okay, I'm gonna apply the formula. But there's no formula for communication. There's no algorithm for leadership. So as you explore these topics, talk about with other people and say, you know, I've been thinking about leadership. I have this situation. How would you have handled it? Oh, that's really interesting. I would have done it differently. Okay, but now I've learned something new. And that's the first download on the resources page talks about how to create this learning group. That's great. And yes, you can do it with the book. You can do it with any of the other books there. You could use this podcast. As you listen to each episode of this podcast, have that discussion. It's going to make this podcast more valuable. So more than anything else, I want you to create that peer learning group so you can learn these skills, which are best learned through discussion. Indeed, and best learned through the building of those communities. So I think that's part of the fun of a book like this, because the communities begin to relate to each other, the challenges they face, and using the toolkit potentially to either repair or to expand and enhance the skill set needed for the interview and for the career. Absolutely, yes. Cool. Well, Mark, it has been an absolute pleasure. And to our listeners, as always, I'm Chuck Garcia. You can find me on chuckgarcia.com and our show today. And thank you to our sponsors. Our show has been sponsored by Climber, C-L-M-B-R, the most efficient full body cardio and strength fitness machine available with instructor-led on-demand climbing and fitness classes. Key investors in Climber include the great tennis player Novak Djokovic, Jay-Z, and Ryan Seacrest. To learn more, go to clmbr.com. If you want to buy one, you can save 250 bucks. Type in Chuck250. Um, there's also interest free financing available if you'd like, and offers cannot be combined and only valid on paid full in pricing. But Climber, thank you very much if you're listening. We really appreciate your support. But Mark, most important, you wrote a wonderful book. Thank you for bringing it into the universe. Thank you for having me on your show. And thank you to your listeners for giving me your time. It was a real pleasure. And thank you. We are signing off for now. I am grateful to Mark for his time and for the contribution of his book called The Career Toolkit. And to our listeners, we are signing off now and good night. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.